What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at talklouder underscore podcast, and of course our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster, and today's guest is a well-known name in Texas metal circles, specifically, I would say Texas underground metal, maybe. Jason, you, you probably know better than I do. Not, not necessarily, because... Uh... You know, I know what I like, and then I just kind of stop there. I'm not really looking for anything new that Kerry Crafton has uh, produced or engineered on. But, it, you know, he's one of my uh, first time, earliest recordings I ever made was a couple of Watchtower songs that we we recorded at Earth and Sky. Well, at Earth and Sky Studio, it's been long, long gone for decades, is where this guy, Kerry Crafton, is, uh, you know, where he was uh, 20-something, maybe, you know, a handful of years older than me and my troublemaking bandmates. Uh, and we won some studio time, and we went and recorded a couple songs, and those two songs ended up on the full-length album but it was the beginnings of what people know as Watchtower Energetic Disassembly. If you read the fine print, our guest today on the Talk Louder podcast engineered and produced those two songs. Now, they were obviously remixed later on because they had to be cohesive with the, re the rest of the you know six or seven songs that were added to that record. But one of my, like I said, as you figured out, one of my earliest memories in the studio was working with Carrie, and we get to talk about that and relive that today. And you know, I have to kind of spill the beans a little bit. You know, it's been a while since we've had a, a producer or an author or somebody like that on the show, but Carrie's name is always in my brain because uh, of just my, you know, my memories. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I don't forget, but I just kind of, it's just over here on the shelf that he produced all of these really cool underground bands on their earliest inceptions, earliest yes. records, you know, if not the first record, but you know, the second or the third or whatever, but he was there, Scratch Acid, Devastation, Agony Column, Rigor Mortis. Now he he's worked with anyone and everyone that we get to talk a little bit about and more, but you could see how excited I was when his name just came across my social media and I went, Oh my God, ding dong. There's, he'd be a great guest on the show. And yeah. how'd you react when I, when I threw that? Had you, did you remember seeing his name in the fine print on a record somewhere or? Actually, I'll be honest. I, I, I did not, I did not know the name, but okay. uh, you pitched a couple of his credits at me. And of course that piqued my interest, uh, you know, Watchtower, Rigor Mortis. And then I started doing some digging. And as you said, Devastation, Dead Horse, Anchor Watt, uh, 
you know, butthole surfer, scratch acid, the list, it just went on and you on and on. You can kind of stop right there. I'm not trying to stop you, but holy Christ, when you think about all that in one bucket and Carrie Crafton's name is all over it, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. And then you're a fan of a band that he produced. <laughs> yes, indeed. I was among his many list of credits was the band Hagfish. Yeah. And I was uh, surprised and happy to find Hagfish among his credits because I wanted to talk to him about uh, of that that band. Um, I discovered them when I was living in Galveston. They were based out of the Dallas area, and they were sort of a pop punk, for lack of better term, type band. Um, and I became friends with the guitar player, Zach Blair, many years later when I moved to Austin. I still bump into him from time to time. So it was fun getting to talk to him about that. And uh, and then some uh, some more well-known names he's he's worked with uh, in some capacity. Uh, Pantera, Rob Halford. He he talks a little bit about working with Stevie Nicks. Um, Glenn Hughes. Glenn Hughes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. The the guy. You know. Joey Belladonna. He he's on the big four tree. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things I I enjoy about doing this show is when when people do music for a living, you find out uh, very quickly that. They might have a certain lane that they specialize in, but if you're going to do it for a living, you've got to be broad enough and talented enough to sort of lend your skills to a wide variety of projects. And and Carrie certainly does that. And I could say that about you as well. I mean, you know, a lot of people know you as the guy from Watchtower and Dangerous Toys, but I've heard you do country western songs. I've heard you do children's Christmas songs. So, you know, if you're going to if you're into it and this is what you do, um, you, you, you cast a pretty wide net and it's, it's sometimes pretty interesting to find out what all these people have done in their careers. And Carrie was definitely one of those guys, very diverse. Well, like he, you said, and he, he talks a little bit about it. It's like, um, you know, you make a cool noise and then you want to record it and, uh, Hey, what was that? That would work really cool for this song that I'm working on and anything can spark uh, an influence for something else. And I think Carrie has got a great mind for that. And, uh, he's made a career out of doing that. Um, let's, let's get into it. Uh, today here on the talk louder podcast, Mr. Carrie Crafton. So, so I'm just going to dig in. So the first time that we met, and this is an important, this is, kind of a confession i put my hand on my heart watchtower we won some free studio time from winning a battle of the bands at steamboat right. in austin texas in 1985 84 right. maybe early, early 85 maybe it would have been and, in, yeah, somewhere in there yeah and it and uh um uh margaret moser and Billy Gibbons, and oh man, I can't remember. You know, they I were judges. Know. They were judges. Me, yeah. Were you a judge? Yeah. You were. It you really were there. Was, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Exactly. I was there. That's why I made sure you won. I wanted to record you. <laughs> you, you fixed the. You fixed the fight. Yes. No, I made sure that I knew picked the best band. Well, look at you! <laughs> no, look you at you go! Billy, 
Billy wasn't originally a judge. He just was there drunk. Oh, oh well, <laughs> I'll take drunk. Let me judge. So he I'll, came I'll, up to the middle of us and bought beers, and it was it was a great time. Well, shit. I'll take a drunk Billy Gibbons as a judge on a on a <laughs> on a battle of the bands over a sober Billy yeah. <laughs> sober Billy Gibbons being a yeah. judge at a battle of especially a heavy metal battle. I was going to say, especially if Watchtower's on stage. Yeah. So anyway, um, we we took the we took the prize, and we we part of the. Well, shit, I don't know if it was the only prize. Anyway, it's it's all we needed because we got to record at Earth and Sky Studios with Carrie Crafton at the helm. And we didn't know who Carrie Crafton was. Please don't be butthurt about that. Just because he wasn't anybody yet. Right. Well, <laughs> well there. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're here today so I can relive my, you know, God, I think I had just turned 20 years old. And uh, we recorded Meltdown and Tyrants in Distress at Earth and Sky Studio, and you were the engineer. Yay! And what do you remember from that? Because I don't remember much, but there's a few things. What do you remember about that? Uh, man, uh, it, it was, it's been so long. I, don't, I, rem I remember doing it. I remember where the, we, we used the booth and those drums, and I remember where I set up the guitar amp and all that kind of stuff. I don't think there was any memorable, like outlandish things that happened or anything like that. It was just a great, great time. I enjoyed it. And y'all, you know, nobody, I'd never really heard anybody do what really is math metal before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I was, I was, I was loving it. Yeah. Neither, neither did we, you know, and I <laughs> think it was, it, it was kind of interesting that Austin was, I'm giving credit to, to the town because we all know that Austin there must be something in the water because there's yeah. a lot of cool shit out of Austin that's not like anything else in the world. Oh, absolutely. And, and Austin is kind of like on the map worldwide as this like hotbed for a uh, different, you know, you know, you know, the, the like keep Austin weird thing is is so people will buy local, buy shit, you know, <laughs> not don't go to Walmart, buy from the artists who who make shit with their hands and their own minds here in Austin. And that was part of the whole thing. But it fit really weird. Whoever came up with that really, really kind of like should have won the lottery because it really worked with what was happening musically and art wise in Austin, Texas. Oh, yeah. The the uh, thing that I remember about that session is Earth and Sky, which is no longer there, was an old house on I-35 by Mueller Airport. Right. It was a kinder, it was a daycare center up front during the day and a recording studio in the back part of the building at night. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> nuts. So did 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 Carrie did Carrie engineer the entire energetic disassembly record or just some initial tracks? Meltdown Two and tracks. Tyrants in Distress. Well, okay. I'm, I'm sure that we wanted, and Carrie, I want Carrie to chime in here, but I'm, I'm, apparently I'm talking over him, and I apologize. Won't be the first time, probably. So, <laughs> so I think that we wanted to try to record more songs, but we burnt up all of our free studio time just doing the two songs because we were, we got studio happy, you know. Yeah. But but one thing that I remember and, and uh, uh, was 
uh, other than it be next to the airport is that when the planes were landing, they would land over I-35. It would get, it's, you, if you were coming, man, it looked like the plane was like gonna hit the top of your fucking car. And, oh, really? and, and uh, it was loud. And so for, to build a recording studio next to the airport is either cheap <laughs> and dumb or I'm waiting for smart to come in, you know, because you're going to you're going to get some airplane shit on your uh, on your recordings. But the thing well, is, the, we guy took that, it, the guy that built it did a pretty good job. We, we really did have pretty good isolation in there unless you were recording a acoustic guitar by the back door or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, we we put do you remember anything about what do you what do you remember anything about what we put on tape? Well, those two songs, but no, I don't. Have, we I do. threw a, we we made you throw a microphone out in the parking lot and record an airplane landing. Oh. Yeah, yeah, now and, I do. And you can hear it on. It was probably Billy's idea. Billy and Doug, <laughs> probably. Uh, Before they Santa. wanted it. Wow, we're by the airport. We're really close to the. Let's mic up the airplane. Yeah, let's. We're just kids. And you like fuck it, okay? And and we use it at the beginning of Tyrants in Distress, and you can hear it when when you listen to the record. And every time, I mean, I don't sit around and listen to Tyrants in Distress, but (laughs) but when you turn that shit on, you can hear that air that airplane landing. And I think of it. Yeah, I have a vague memory of that. But yeah, I, so, when we did the Scratch Acid record, we did all kind of crazy shit like oh, that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, what do you remember about the Scratch Acid sessions? Uh, really, it was, it was a lot of fun because it, when they came in there, it was, you know, most of the time you have a band. We are a genre. We must sound like this. You know, it's all geared that way. It was like just totally everything was experimental. I mean, they had the basic things to the song, but if I said, let's play the piano along with it at double speed and then lower it back down. So it's weight, you know what I mean? Stuff. Yeah, let's try it. Let's do it. You know, it ends up on there. We, you know, did a bunch of little sound effects. It was just, it was just a real fun session. And it, you know, it ended up being real good for me. (laughs) Do you go ahead, Dave. You did. You also worked with the Butthole Surfers, and and I would imagine it would be sort of similar in the sense that it's kind of uh, an anything goes kind of. We're not a metal band. We're not a rock band. We're not a mariachi band. But if any of those influences come into play, let's go for it. Was that sort of a similar situation with those guys? Well, that was probably even crazier. Now I never did anything that was like did like the whole album or anything. I did two or three different little projects with them. Okay. One of them was having, uh, oh gosh, and I'll forget her name, the real annoying comedian, which doesn't narrow it down much. Girl, Sand- Sandra Bernhardt? Yes. How did Singing I know that? How did <laughs> I know? Heard- That's a, I pulled that out of my butt. I have no idea. You said no, we, annoying. We recorded a version of Barracuda and sent it to her to do the vocals on. Holy moly. <laughs> Where can I hear that shit? Hopefully, <laughs> I don't think it exists anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, I didn't expect that. But. And yeah. then we did one real like just we we put twelve all their songs on a multi-track, you know, two tracks at a time to fill up all twenty-four in the end, and just and then 
Paul was just sitting there bringing up faders and bringing them down. It wasn't really like a medley. It was just like this pastiche of sound. So we did, we had some fun stuff together. Yeah. Do you think, <laughs> do you think as a, as a producer and an engineer, do you feel like sometimes people don't do enough of that on their records? They don't, and it's not, I don't call it taking risk. I just call it part of the art, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, so obviously where where you come from and, and the artists that you've worked with just kind of like, I, I mean, do you feel like uh, blessed and or lucky uh, to, yeah, yeah, to be, to be like, just like in the same room with these like, you know, crazy artsy fartsy rock and roll people and you're like fuck yeah let's do it because some people would be like why would you want to do that that's stupid you're going to get bleed blah 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 <laughs> you know it's like let's learn the rules of this craft so we can fucking right. break them you exactly. know what i mean exactly. and a lot of people don't think like that when they go to like i don't know sound person school <laughs> and they don't and they just learn how to do this one thing and how this is how you're supposed to do it and da 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 you're not using the right tool to hammer that nail into the wall you know it's right. like someone's using a brick you know what i mean <laughs> well what did a caveman use worked just fine right so that, that, i feel that, that brings up, i'm sorry that, no go go i want to i this is a great segue because i wanted to ask harry uh, technology has obviously played a massive role in your industry. And you, Jason was just talking about back in the Watchtower days, you threw a microphone out in the parking lot to capture an airplane sound or whatever. And so do you feel like, uh, obviously the technology has made things more convenient, but in that convenience, do you lose some of the art and the creativity of, 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 of reaching for things that that required some ingenuity that wasn't just punching a button on a on a you know a sampler or something to be honest no yeah. you enjoy <laughs> I, I mean when i was recording the best 24 tracks what you wanted to use you know as as things transitioned okay then i was using those 2033 24 digital but tape you know and that was the best thing to use i've always embraced it and i I, I have no really desire to go back and ever use analog tape again, uh, some analog equipment. But the thing is, the, the equipment doesn't get the sound in my head. Mm -hmm. What I do to the sound does. And I can do that. I can make it sound just, if I did it all analog, it would sound, I think, exactly like the digital thing. Because right. it's what I would get the sound I want. Yeah, explain your explain your just for some people listening, and I want to hear your take on it. Explain, uh, like, what the difference would be in a modern recording, any kind any kind of music, uh, between tape and digital. Well, for one thing, you were limited by the number of tracks number of things separate things you could record to either 16 or you know then 24 and then you know when people did put two machines together and sync them and get 48 but for still, analog yeah there's a limitation yeah. also with analog type every time you play it you lose some of it 
-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how many times I had a great snare sound when we cut it, and by the time I mix it, it sounds like somebody hitting a paper sack because it just loses the trance. It loses the peak, the attack edge of the front part of it. You know, yeah, you're time. you're tearing the tape up every time you fast yeah. forward, every rewind, move it. it. It's a little yeah. less good the next time. Yeah, uh, and also it, it it just it changes what you do when you were when you're recording analog. Analog is going to take away brightness. It's going to enhance bottom. So you have to over brighten and not and and watch the low end you record. You can't really just say, I want this snare sound, I'm gonna get that snare sound. Once I have it recorded, it's gonna sound exactly like it did. With digital, that's possible. Yeah. And it was that way forever. Yeah. And also it gives you the flexibility. I mean, I mix all kinds of songs now. They're 96, 136 tracks, you know? Yeah, and you, and you can you do, the you freedom can, sky's the limit. Do stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, man. And it doesn't, it's the creativity comes from here and then you just record it on something sure you know right. well let me jump in and say this so so another segue is what this is that kind of like <laughs> it, it, it does it's open-ended it doesn't put a cap on any of it. it there's there's no real answer other than uh and you know you didn't even give your opinion you just gave differences in what you can do limitations and stuff the the uh where I can take this now is the fact that you pretty much run a school <laughs> for doing what you're what you do and what you've always done. You're like running a fucking school that teaches people how to do that shit. Uh, you're teaching someone m multiple things on how to work with sound manipulate sound manipulate microphones control sound control eq con sound period am i right, right. am i close okay yeah. so i'm going somewhere with this <laughs> so the fact that you have recorded an airplane or recorded some bullshit with the butthole surfers and recorded some <laughs> just all kinds of nutty crazy <laughs> fucking noises and shit and made music out of it there's no rules right you're right. breaking all the rules all the time and i said something earlier do you feel like now that you're like this sort of um sensei of sound <laughs> uh, copyright <laughs> copyright <laughs> sensei of sound to put that on a ears on ears off Years on, years off. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, years on, years off. Wow, that's yeah. fucking good, dude. Uh, you, uh, you, you're basically you and your crew are are teaching, you know, Joe Blow, like people like me and Dave, you know, to come in and like learn how to do this. At what point are you going? Okay, let's learn all the rules. I said this earlier. Let's learn all the rules about what it is that we're doing here so we can break them later on when we want to really get creative. How is that how, how would you how would you sort of like put that on the table for a room full of students? Well, I, I haven't taught for a few months now since I became the campus director, but when I did and when I'm working with students individually because I still do that. This okay. direct classes, but I, I just show them what I do. I, I, I am not a super clinical, everything's so clean and I'm wearing a lab coat, kind of a recording engineer. I'm a rock Perfect. and roll engineer. I like everything a little nasty, a little dirty, you know, 
Yes. A little edgy, you know, and again, the sound always comes from here. But until you've done enough of it to know what you're supposed to hear, you know, the thing I always, and I've told my students when I, was I did teach mixing class for several years, is that, you know, when I first started doing this down in Austin and back when I, at the time, you know, working with you, man, I, I a lot of times didn't, I mean, I go, I just, I mean, I just can't get this particular thing right, or I can't get this right, or, you know, I, the guitar sound, I don't know what to do with it. It's because I didn't have a goal. I was just trying techniques. Yeah. Techniques won't get you to the sound in your head necessarily. You know what I mean? And once I knew, I've been doing this so long, whenever I, like, if somebody sends me something to mix, first time I listen through to it, I always kind of know what the guitars need to do like, what kind of drums it should have, you know, kind of already have a snare sound in mind, you know, stuff like that, because I, not because I'm a genius or anything, just because I've been doing it a long time. Anybody that's been doing this that, this long, to, you know, should do that. Yes, sir. So I already have kind of, I have a map in my head for how I'm going to, what I'm going to do to those instruments in that mix to make them all fit together, to make everything be louder than everything else. You know? Yeah. And so, and that is, again, there is a bit of Zen almost sometimes in this, because mixing especially is very mental. You know, the same, you use the same equipment engineering as you do mixing, you yeah. know, just recording as you do mixing. Yeah. But not everybody who can do a great recording can do, can do a great mix. It's, it's a different level. How, how long have you been doing this? I'm sorry? How long have you been doing this, Carrie? Uh, since 79. Oh, wow. Do you remember your, your very first credit on an album? Well, probably on a single for Terminal Mind there in Austin. <laughs> okay. And when would that no, be? No, that's not true. The, oh gosh, what Sally Norvell's band. That was the first band I produced. Wow. After I, I could play in a band called Assistance for a while, and they were wanting to go in the studio, and they asked me, and I went in the same studio I had recorded us at. And well, one of those two was the first. They I did them kind of close together. And, and what, what year is this? About what time frame? 79. Okay, yeah. So were you a musician before going into the engineering, producing game? Well, there's varying opinions on that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I played I always, you know, I played guitar and do, but and have way too many of them. But I never was got to sit around and practice eight hours a day. You know, to right. me, a guitar was an objective to get something down. I really, when I saw the the Beatles back in '63 or something, and then they got a I got a tape recorder, a little reel to reel recorder for Christmas for, you know, that started that idea really all the way back there. Wow, you know, but at the time there was no way to find out how do they do that. You know, how do you, you know, it's just a magic thing. You could sing into this and it would sing back. You know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, of course, I took it apart to see how it worked, and it didn't work after that. But <laughs> nice job. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, came a point where I, I got married young. I was working as a carpenter, and that the Austin. Building, one of the building booms kind of fell off real hard, and I decided to go back to school. And so there was no recording schools like this. I would have killed, you know, 
not literally, but I mean, I would have done almost anything to have gone to a place like this when I was there, when I was yeah. there. Because I yeah. went to UT and we had a eight track Soundcraft console, a bunch of RE20 mics, all the same, uh, a four track Ampex and a two track Scully to mix to. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I was supposed to learn how to start wow. recording and engineering. And actually, it did teach me a lot. Yeah, the RE twenties. Students come and they're on. They're playing. They're working around with Brian Wilson's old console. Brian Wilson's wow. one that ordered this console. Was the original owner. Wow, you know, that's computers and Pro Tools. We got five thousand dollar mics in there, you yeah. know, and everything else. It's like, and it's a, you know it would be it would have been a heaven to me. They never would have got me to leave. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was going to ask you how you transitioned from uh, from being an aspiring musician to becoming an aspiring producer or engineer, and and it and it was born out of just curiosity with a tape recorder. Is that is that what is that what I'm hearing? Originally, and once you know, once I had gone to you know done what little like I was. Rollins was like a hundred yards from the recording studio, and build, you know, the building the recording studio was on. And, you, and you played at Raul's. You had a band, and you played at Raul, Raul's. Yeah, I was. How old system. were you when you played at Raul's? Twenty six, twenty five. Okay. What was your band called? <laughs> it was called F Systems. Okay. All right. <laughs> did you did you play on any cool bills with like you know up and comers? Big boys. Oh, Back then. I mean, you know, all the ones we played with, you know, Standing Ways, and I think we played with tons. We played with the, the Skunks, with yeah. D Day, yeah, whatever. That, all those that's, guys. That sounds like uh, people I worked at another raw deal with when I was washing dishes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, every a member of all of those bands was working, working in the in that restaurant while I was back there, the headbanger washing dishes. That's fine. That's, That's crazy. always used to work. Is it Schlossky's or some restaurant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Co Conan's, another yeah. raw deal. Yeah. Yeah, Old Austin is the coolest shit ever. We, you know that, so. Yeah. Well, well, Dave, when you Dave's from San Antonio, so, yeah. you know, he's yeah. he got here as fast as he could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you started uh, directing your energy towards the, the studio work, producing, engineering, uh, were there any particular producers or engineers that you that you heard on albums that became sort of your mentors or the the people that you you, you wanted to emulate? There is an absolutely big yes to that. Roy Thomas Baker. Mm. Wow, I've worked with I've I got to work with Roy. Wow. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, the second the second <laughs> Dangerous Toys record yeah. is produced yeah. by Roy. And I saw. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but well, to me, that really is what was the motivation to, when I just, when I needed to decide to go back to school and the engineering was I heard that first Queen record and then the second one just blew my mind, and I want to know how do you do that? How do you get a guitar to sound like a trumpet or a violin or, you know, all that stuff? So yeah. that was really and I and I've always been that. He's been my my template. Yeah. Wow. For mixing ever since, no matter what I'm mixing, it's the big, the wide, big and wide and deep. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we did a whole episode, uh, Talk Louder podcast episode on Martin Birch because uh, Jason and I are big fans of his work. And, it, it, I, you know, maybe it's just me because I'm more of a fan of the music and I don't really have the ears for the production and the engineering. But Martin is one of those guys that has his stamp on so many great albums that he becomes sort of the rock star, if you will, uh, because right. his because his output is so incredible, and Roy Thomas Baker, of course, being another one. You mentioned Queen. We mentioned Dangerous Toys, but he did the Cars and uh, I think Cheap maybe, Trick. It Cheap goes trick. Go- and yeah, it's, run before he just fell off the cliff somewhere. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he just he did. He's he really kind of uh, well. He was game changer, just like Carrie just yeah. said. He was kind of a game changer. Yeah. Um. Uh, and, Queen was probably his calling card as far as the being a game changer. So, but he did oh, yeah, like was dangerous toys. He was did no he do he did like Bad Company and stuff like that. He did yeah. Foreigner. He did. There was a time when he was doing half the things that were released. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. on one song, yeah. like ten songs in a row on the radio. Yeah, exactly. you're exactly right. That's a yeah. good that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, did I see in your list of credits Pantera? Yeah, I mean, I, I it was minimal. Uh, I recorded some rhythm, some drum and guitar tracks for them for the album before Far Beyond Driven. I forget what that one is. No, that'd be Vulgar, vulgar. Display. Vulgar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it was. It for Vulgar Display because they started in his, his dad's, uh, Benny's dad's house, and then they got were booked up, so they came down to good night and we recorded three or four days. And then I did another assistant. It was just assistant engineer while they did a, them and diamond Benny did a, a song with Rob Halford mm-hmm. and Rob Halford was there for about a week at, overall doing that. Wow. And then they wow. came and just wrote some demos one time or something, but. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Rob Halford because I saw his name on your list of credits as well. Is, is this the same or did you do something else with Rob Halford? No, it was that again, you know, they brought an engineer, but I was the second engineer, you know, setting things up, tuning Vinny's drums and mm-hmm. <laughs> another thing like that. Well, I have a great, almost great rock and roll story. I'll make it short. No, Rob tell us. We're hanging out the back door there at good night. And it's kind of an industrial area. So across the street, there's a bunch of welding shops and, you know, Tim, that kind of tin buildings, that kind of thing. And there was a band over there started playing Judas Priest. Uh-oh. And I tried to get Rob to walk across there and walk in on him. He would not do it. Oh. That well, they were keeping it real quiet. Nobody knew he was in town. Yeah, yeah, we didn't yeah. Want, you know, so it was a total hush-hush thing. But, yeah, that would have, that would have been great. I always wish we could have done that. <laughs> so so, so what, what exactly were the, were the Abbott brothers doing with, with Rob Halford? What, what, did that, what was the outcome of that? A song for a movie soundtrack, some horror movie thing. I forget the name, called White Heat. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, you know, to be involved in vulgar display of power, that that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, that is a classic metal album that will stand the test of time. And uh, you got to put a fingerprint on it. So congratulations. Yeah. Well, I have. Yeah, I was much he- more heavily involved with rigor mortis. But <laughs> yeah, I was just going to. That's a perfect segue, Kerry. Um, let's before we get into into rigor mortis and uh, the love of Bruce Corbett and Mike Skasha. Um, 
let's talk about devastation and how you met Rodney and re and where did you which which record did you do of devastation signs of life signs of life right oh uh, there's talk of a reissue of that uh cool. yeah it's uh, how many things i did 25 30 years ago are coming back out again <laughs> yeah isn't that crazy <laughs> um how did you who were you contacted by to do to do signs of life metal blade Metal Blade. Uh, are you sure? Are you sure? The... You sure it wasn't combat? Were they on combat? Yeah, they were on combat. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I think my first contact with them, I guess that I met their their person at early South by Southwest. For and devastation. I I, yeah. Okay. And then I think they played at that one. But then again, some of these things get jumbled up. Right. So, so anyway, it's, it seems like it would have been Rodney Dunsmore reaching out to you for some reason. But if it was a label, that's cool. They were probably again, looking for. That's okay. So looking awful. for looking for somebody in 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 Texas to record a, a band that's already living in Texas makes way too much sense, and I wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> well, again, that's kind of what and you know the things I did some things with Metal Aid. And, I mean, Metal Blade and Triple X and right. what was the one the Agony Column was on? Big Chief. Big Chief. Big Chief. Uh, yep. you know, I was doing a lot of, I was doing most of the really good metal bands from Texas back then, of course, except for yours. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, the, so the fact that you recorded, you know, Agony Column, Devastation, and Rigor Mortis, just, just those three right there in my book makes you... Yeah. Dead horse, right? May, you did anchor wad as well. Yeah, yeah. Anchor Holy Watt. crap, dude! Scratch you recorded acid. all. You recorded all of my friends, and uh, <laughs> and that and all of those bands in their own right are legendary. Yeah, juggernaut. all. I loved them all. Juggernaut. You did mix. Juggernaut. Yeah. How did you? So it was Metal Blade probably contacted you about Juggernaut, or was it someone in the band? Again, dude, it's been so long, and I was right. never big in the business part. I talked right. to whoever and said, "Yeah, this, is, you know, would and would do it." But I, you know, especially with indie labels like that, it's usually all phone calls. You know, of course, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I have a big memory of you know that too much. Now, when I when you start dealing with you know Island and Sony and stuff, then you, you see more people face to face. There's more meetings, so you have a bigger memory of it, but. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I did two things for Metal Blade for Juggernaut. You know, both really cool. Again, they both uh, got reissued here in the last uh, three or four years ago. Maybe. Yeah, I th I'm, I'm kind of thumbing through some records. Just I have at arm's length, and I and I believe <laughs> I have those really close by. Um, you know that I just I could sit here and talk about just that for you know hours. But let's start. Ta let's get into rigor mortis. So the idea. Uh, I have devastation idolatry right here, <laughs> and that's a. Uh, I don't think you did that one, did you? No, I was kind of okay. disappointed. I only got to be one. I don't know what happened. They didn't like well, it. Rod Rodney Dunsmore, our lead vocalist, is uh, uh, one of my oldest friends, and you probably oh, yeah? could could have guessed that. And he's uh, he's the best man. And he he he's uh, he was on our show. He's been on the Talk Louder po podcast before. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I really uh, like that record. I, 
we'll yeah. go long periods and listen to it and I'll throw it on and I go, damn, I, I, that's good. I like Shit, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a record that, uh, like I said, there's there's talk of a reissue. There's I have friends who have s small labels that are always talking about, you know, war warning, we might want to do that record, you know. Oh, oh, let me ask you this. Maybe I'm doing some homework for them, right? Some reconnaissance yeah. work. Do you have masters from that shit? Or is the label took that? Got you thinking. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I have a bunch of tapes at home that I have talked to a guy here, Jeff Mount, about doing transfers. One okay. of them is the Rigor Mundi second record, a third record, technically, the second one I did. Right. This is the earth. I'm going to probably do something and remix some of them. And I'm looking through that. I think I may have the Desert Devastation Master. Holy I can't, shit. But it's just, I, I have a vision of it being on a on the side of a reel. It's a two-track? It's, well, no, it's, well, it's, it's a master? It's still a half inch. They were skinnier. Oh, okay. But it's a it's a master mix. Well, I think it would be the master tracks, yeah. all the, the separate tracks. Oh, really? Yeah. Now I have oh, mixes. I mean, I have digital copies of all the original mixes. The final mix, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's probably what they would need. Anyway, we'll have to talk. I'll have to put them in touch with you if that's okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So so rigor mortis. You know, I have to I have to say this. Um, you know, Bruce and, and Mike are, are gone and they were legend. They're, they're legends for, they're immortal to me. And they, they were legends when they were alive and they were friends and they were just incredible people and like top notch at what they fucking did. Now, everyone in rigor mortis is a living legend to me. Um, yeah. I absolutely, I'm, I mean, the things that Casey is doing and has done and will continue to do, the guy is a walking, living legend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's fucking it's crazy. Cool <laughs> Say what? What was he's that? He's a cool dude, too. Yeah, yeah, he's the nicest <laughs> guy in the room, yeah. Um, so tell us, a, tell, what was a day in the studio with rigor mortis like? Uh, it was nuts. Now, I remember how I got that one. Okay, tell us. It was the scratch eyes of connection. Here's your six degrees. Okay. The capital and I, the, the, the rigor, the scratch eyes that they made, all the A&R people loved that thing. No, no, it didn't sell much. It was, that was Jeff Lyles introduced me. And that was the thing that they were like, oh, wow, you did scratch acid. And I was like, yeah, nobody in Austin even cares about it. Why? Wow. <laughs> you know, at that time. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And that was at a South by Southwest. And the first time I saw them was in the Union Ballroom there at UT. Oh, yeah. The PA that was only for the vocals. And then playing in a room that's like a big hardwood library, you know. <laughs> and it was a big ball of hair. It was a mess. But that's where Rachel first introduced me and showed me the band. And wow. then it was a few months later, you know, she reached out and we set it up and, you know, Actually, that record is what paid for the move to Dallas. I had to close oh. my studio, and I was at the time, man. I was getting a lot more stuff happening up here. There was a lot of label stuff happening up here, you yeah. know, at the time. And so that, you know, I used that to move on up here in the DFW and area. It's it ever since. Yeah, yeah. You've been you've been up there a long, 
time now. What, what year was that that you moved out of Austin? Was it like late 80s? I moved over Christmas hot week of 87 into 88, and we went in the studio in the end of January, mid-February, something like that. Wow. For three straight days, seven at night till seven in the morning. <laughs> now, now, wow. So to be clear, you mentioned someone, and it just sparked a, a, the only brain cell I have. Uh, you said Rachel... Is it Rachel from from the label? Was that someone? Yeah, Rachel Matthews. Sorry. Yeah, Rachel Matthews from Capital. She's Capital. Yeah. Capital Records, right? That's what I thought. I think she signed Megadeth to Capital as well. I don't. I don't know. Nothing. Whoa. Could have been, or maybe William Howell was involved in that as well. Uh, Anyway, um, the uh, the interesting thing is, is having Rachel involved at a south by makes total sense but the idea of scratch acid and rigor mortis makes it seem a little a little odd because even though it you could say both are very extreme but they're extreme of each other even both being extreme um uh on the art side of it right right the uh spirit wise not that different Correct. Spirit-wise, <laughs> not that different. Yes, you are correct about Loud that. Loud wow. and nasty and vulgar and, you know, yeah. I mean, and aggressive sounding and, yeah. you know, everything else. It was a different music form, but it was basically the same kind of spirit in both, you know. Yeah. Was, was, Rachel, was Rachel playing you demos or had you heard Rigor Mortis before or were you watching them live? Well, the first, uh, first time I heard them was live just that one time at the union and then oh, she okay. gave you know, jeff gave me a cassette that they recorded out in dallas okay. a long time ago uh and it had the kind of the rough forms of the most of the first record yeah yeah okay so that you know, i had that to go by and then you know we showed up up here you asked what it was day in the studio was like sorry about five minutes ago before i ran us down that rabbit hole no that's okay but that's what this show is all it about was, it was Trust crazy me. because i'm from austin you know austin man it's cool and it's throat laid back Chill. And, yeah yeah you know, yeah it's all everybody you know it's like that so i go up here and i'm in this huge studio you know doing a label a record for capital and those boys were wild boys at that time yeah <laughs> they all grew up into absolutely fine men but they were a bit on the crazy side you know we were the producer you know i was the engineer the producer was david ogley from skinny puppy okay and rachel wow. perfectly did that weird the whole you were talking about the whole she did that on purpose okay uh and uh we were watching Faces of Death on the TV all the time. All the, the, the snuff film, you know, where everybody shows everybody killing yeah. or dying and stuff. And I was like, man, this is a lot different than Steve Fromholtz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Now, not I'll that say. I hadn't done a lot of I had done other music like that, but it was like, you know, Dallas ain't, ain't Austin. And right, I, was, correct, I really right. thought they were, I thought Bruce was an absolute psychopath when I. <laughs> Well, I can I can understand him having the faces of death on because the the lyrical content and where he his Bruce's yeah. kind of I don't want to call it shtick, but his thing was uh, you know lyrically and f sort of physically sort of emoting what that is. 
I could see Faces of Death being a backdrop for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, all those. I mean, it was horror, horror based. Yeah. You know, yeah. very themes and stuff, but it's it's all kind of that way, and that's what you know. Bruce is always involved in the horror fest and everything. Yes. You know, all here and yes. and all, and it was, but it was. Again, such a such a big change that I really it's like, man, these guys might really cut someone into five easy pieces, you know. Oh, oh no. <laughs> they, they, you know the, the, also, it was kind of like the deal is like they were a family, a gang, you know. So I had to prove my way into that gang, you know. Mm-hmm. So early on, it was like you know, giving me weird nicknames and stuff. Nobody was mean or cruel, but it was kind of like, okay, you, you got to remember you're the outsider. Yeah. Just like when you try to initiate a dog into a new pack, everybody's going to tell him to back off for a while. Yeah. You know? yeah. But it didn't take long. And of course, they became lifelong dear, you know, family. They just, you know, to me. So it, it, it turned out good. <laughs> you mentioned yeah, uh, yeah. you mentioned a major label earlier. I, I, I think you said Island or Chrysalis, and it, it doesn't really matter. But in your experience as a either a producer or an engineer, um, and Jason might have some input on this question, too. I've always been curious because I'm ignorant on the subject, but you as the producer, let's say, or or the engineer, I would imagine you might have a little less say as the engineer, but when you're recording for a major label, how how much does the label leave you alone to do what you do, and how much do they push back when they say... Uh, the, the the sound isn't sonically what we want for radio or whatever it is they're looking for. Have you ever butted heads with somebody, you know, a suit at the label? Actually, no, I never had, I never really ran into that. The Riga record, of course, they didn't. <laughs> you wouldn't expect that maybe they went away. What, you know, uh, but, you know, that one, they didn't. And, like when I did the, the things I did for Island. Now, the, Kim Bowie was their A&R person at the time and, and just came to Dallas and set up that, that Deep Ellum record, you know, the so- Sounds of Deep Ellum, where we recorded 10 different bands from around the city uh, up here. And uh, she was there while we did it. But in that case, and in some, you know, the thing of session I did down in the Bahamas, she was just there facilitating, but she never made any kind of musical opinions or anything. So I, mean, I haven't done a hundred projects like that or anything. So, well, so a, you know, the, they, that does happen sometime. It's, it's happened, oh, you yeah. know, right in front of me a few times, but it, mm-hmm. it wasn't detrimental. you know, it didn't make or break the song or the record. It's just, some people have an opinion and they express it. It doesn't usually have to stick. Right. I, I was just curious, especially, you know, the higher up the ranks you get, you know, it, it, what is the role of the label in all this? How much do they stay out of your way and let the producer be the producer? And how much do they push back and say, eh, it's still a little too raw for radio or it's a little too, you know, the song is a little too long. You know, how much input do they have versus letting you do what you do as the expert? It varies a lot by genre and stuff. I mean, pop. And you know probably the upper level hip hop stuff now is going to be more subject to that than than you know under uh, you know small label underground metal bands and stuff. Right. right. But uh, yeah, it happens. I mean because you know if Beyonce's doing something, there's probably going to be 13 guys in, involved in it and 17 producers and you know stuff like that. So I guess that would be the ultimate expression of that. You know. Yeah. Uh, but, 
I mean, it, it obviously it does happen. It's more in those type of things. And of course, less and less is there are not really major labels doing near as much as they used to either. Right. Um, you know, I, it was true. It happened. I mean, a lot of times because originally, you know, the role of the producer was he worked with the A and R person to pick the songs the singer would perform. Right. You know, they didn't have people come in writing their own songs, bringing their own band. They, okay, you're Ella Fitzgerald. Let's find out what Ella needs. A, you know, a, we need a song for Ella to do. Well, we'll ask you know all this famous songwriters to send them stuff a and r would talk with the producer about which one they thought would be the best they were delivered to the orchestra and teach them to play it and Ella would come in and sing on it so that's that was the you know frank sinatra any of those people too this is the same kind of thing back then yeah yeah that's where that kind of comes from i feel like that hap has been happening i mean that they, elvis that's been going on the whole time you know oh yeah it's very same thing. yeah yeah well, you know, A&R stands for artist repertoire. It means the guy who, the, the person who basically is picking the songs and everything. Those have all changed over the years, kind of. You know, then A&R just became the person kind of signing the band. Yeah. You know, right. and then the producer was more of the person picking the songs and doing all that. And yeah. Stuff like that. So those, everything kind of changes over time. Now producer just means I have GarageBand on my laptop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's exactly what producer means these days. I, I had to, you know, I don't have to Google YouTuber, but there's, 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 you know, there's YouTube stars, and that just, I'm baffled by that. You know, yeah, there's yeah. no you're, you know, you're the artist and the producer, and you, you're just in a, in your own room being creative, and there's something really cool about that and there's something socially unnerving about that because it's not really live music it's not really there's you're you're not it's not five guys in the garage and then next thing you know they've really worked hard and become the biggest rock band in the world you yeah can, in you general say, prince prince got away with it pretty well oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah as far as the control freak and being able to play everything well there was you know and and stevie wonder did did kind of the same thing where he played a lot of the instruments and lenny kravitz followed suit and it makes sense for a little while and even dave Grohl did it first foo fighters that's all him yeah so it's kind well, of interesting. the album i sent you that i just released that's it's pretty much all me programming okay. and writing and everything else except for little guest appearances <laughs> yeah so so let's talk about that real quick so so you so you are producing music but you're literally writing and producing music uh like the like because you have garage band on your laptop sorry right. just being funny right i do it on the I, phone I never right right people <laughs> do it on their phone or shit yeah you have all that stuff sitting behind you but you do it on your yeah, phone right. <laughs> right. right um you know uh, where can people go here uh you you know carrie crafton creations well I, I did this to make me finish a bunch of stuff that was laying around and almost finished for years and years and years yeah and most of them kind of started as things i sell to music libraries because i've been doing that for a while you know not real regular because i just don't get around to it or it takes me forever to finish anything but I have over the years sold to several, you know, the big music libraries and stuff, you know. And so these are all kind of, some of these kind of started that. Sometimes I just pick up my guitar and I'm at home and I start playing something. And I think I'd like to make a song out of that. And so I go in there and make a song out of that. And well, that's, that's how it's, a, that, that's, like that. yeah. yeah, that's how it's supposed to happen anyway, kind of naturally anyway. 
So anyway, I just passed, had my 69th birthday this last May 29th. Unbelievable. Happy birthday. And for it, to celebrate, well, thank you. To celebrate that, I just, I made myself a deadline to finish all those. I did five or six videos for them. And it's just on a website of mine. For, it's free. CarrieCrafton.com. Pretty easy. Yeah. And uh, just click on there. You you can purchase it for zero dollars. Perfect. Oh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> email so I can send you the, the, the zip file. So <laughs> perfect. Wow. And I'm gonna post some of the videos on YouTube too. I need to get to that. I haven't yet, but I will. I have a YouTube channel. Good. Yeah, I might get to it. Right now there's just a couple of war beast things on it, but <laughs> Oh, that's right. War so you beast. let's you did the war beast. Did you do all of the war beast stuff? No, I, I only did two. I mixed two songs that got left off one of the, one of the last two albums of the house score stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that didn't have really lyrics and stuff at the time. that Bruce had written them and you know had written lyrics and wanted those finished. And so at the time when he was kind of you know. Yeah. In that direction, he said, yeah. "Man, I want to, I want to hear these done. Would you mix them?" It's like, but of course. Okay. So, you know, I mixed those two songs, and uh, you know, he he may have sent he may have he may have sent me those actually. I may have those. Monster uh, was one. I'm sorry. One of one of his name Monster, and the other one was about his brother, and I can't remember. Oh, okay what that one the title of that but anyway okay well so when i also need to make sure you have them <laughs> great great when i was uh looking over your your list of credits i mean it, it's it's exhaustive you've been involved in so much music and and i want to get to this a little later on B besides you know rock and roll and music you've done movie soundtracks and tv commercials and things of that nature um but one of you know, and and the Texas connection, of course, is is very strong. We've mentioned Rigamortis, Watchtower, Dead Horse, Scratch Acid, Butthole Surfers, Anchor Watt. It goes on and on. Devastation. Uh, but one of the names that bumped that jumped that jumped out at me, because I'm a big fan, was Hagfish. Oh yeah. Tell me about Hagfish because I love that Buick Man record. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that we did up here at the, the Good Night Audio where I basically was my home i was i freelanced there basically it was my, where i did all my work and uh we did that for patrick keel's label with with davis david denard that's up here they had a label dragon street dragon street yes yeah so we did that because uh, i worked with patrick all a whole lot in austin all of his early stuff i worked with him on we kind of moved both moved to dallas at the same time so hagfish for for people listening that aren't that, that that don't know that aren't familiar I would say just to put it in a box I would call it like pop punk kind of music exactly as, as, what I was gonna say. yeah very short pop punk songs yeah you know <laughs> somewhere somewhere along the line of Green Day or something like that Ramones influenced or whatever uh, but it jumped out at me number one because I'm a fan and number two because uh, a lot of your pedigree is 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 metal and very avant-garde experimental kind of abrasive sort of stuff i guess and hagfish jumped out at me because you know i remember getting that album and listening to it and and i run into zach blair here in austin from time to time because i guess he's lived here for years and years and he's friends of uh 
the riverboat gamblers who are yeah. who are friends of mine. And you're, you're probably aware of the riverboat gamblers being from the, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth area. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I wanted to pick your brain on what it was like to work with hagfish because they obviously have a sense of humor. Yeah, they were they, it, they were kind of crazy, it, but it was fun. I mean, they really were pretty serious in the studio, except for what was the lead singer's name? Was it George? Uh, uh, I want to say George was the drummer. Was it Don Donovan? Or... No, you're you're right. Yeah, George. Uh, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was crazy. He was taking nude pictures of him and his girlfriend out in the hall, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> right, and they run around. But the, you know, the band all came in. were you know, pretty straight ahead. It was it was you know, it was fun. I I really enjoyed those sessions. That was fun. Yeah, that, that, that's a, the album is called Buick Man. They did another one after that called Hagfish Rocks Your Lame Ass. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you were part of that one. I know you were part of Buick Man. And uh, for anyone listening out there, if you're into the Ramones or Green Day or that sort of thing, uh, check out Hagfish. Um, another name that jumped out as being a, a little you know, uh, left of center for, for your pedigree was, uh, I saw Stevie Nicks in your list of credits. What, what, in what capacity did you work with Stevie Nicks? Well, I, rec I recorded a couple of different songs with her two different times. And man, I, you know, if you're going to do this business a long time, I've done, I've worked with, you know, Stevie Nicks and Glenn Hughes, and I've done a bunch of hip hop stuff that, that did what, you know what I mean? And just, I, I did the demos that got Jessica Simpson signed so, you know, wow. if you're going to be, a, especially if you're going to be a producer or, or engineer, I mean, you got, you know, you got to be able to do anything. I mean, I've done a bunch right. of country stuff. You know? Sure. So, I, you know, I get all of it. You just have to. But Stevie came, Stevie was kind of a part owner or something of good night. We had her 150-year-old nine-foot white Steinway there in our studio. Because oh, wow. she didn't want to have it in California because of earthquakes. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, she would she would pop in once in a while. So we we came in and did a song called "All the Beautiful Worlds" one time, and uh, basically just me and the band in that case. Uh, and then she came back and did a special song for Jane Goodall, called Jane, obviously, apparently, and uh, that she recorded for that for a special event for a film, I think. Mm. But that was pretty cool, and. When I was going to college, or after I got out of college, I ran a limousine service, and I was also her limousine driver in San Antonio for three days one time. Far out. Wow. <laughs> wow. She did not remember me. <laughs> what about the Glenn Hughes session? Oh, well, again, it was a, a demo thing. When he, when he first got clean, he was also a friend of Gordon and the guy that owned the studio and everything, and they came in and we recorded a, a song just to kind of get him back in the studio and get going again because he had, you know, been in rehab for a while. And then he did a with he did a couple of Christmas albums with Keith Olsen that they sent me to master. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Glenn, I was I was more star shocked by Glenn than a lot of people because when I was early early young, man, Trapeze and the song Medusa was just my just loved it. Yeah, and to meet the guy that was that played and sang, you know, Medusa and Trapeze was was it really impressed me. I loved that song. Wow, yeah, I mean, <laughs> one of the, I mean, Glenn Hughes 
to this day, his voice is just amazing. And oh I, yeah, I'm sure it was the deadly daisies he's playing with now are awesome. Yeah, me, and me he, and Dave went and caught a couple ca- caught a couple songs of D- Dead Daisies, and yeah, uh, yeah. They, they were they were they blew our mic. Glenn especially. There's a lot of good new whatever you want to call that genre of rock band riff rock is what I call it. Kind of covers you know. Uh, that they're that are out there, that, you know, Black Rainbows and my Apple Music automatic play gives me a lot, of, introduces me to a lot of great new bands because it keeps playing things like that, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, so I mean, Glenn Hughes. I mean, I, I obviously that's that was huge for you. Who's on your yeah. bucket list to work with? Who have you not worked with that you're just dying to work with? That's a loaded question, Dave. Nobody, you know what? Because for for a long time, it's like I try not to at all get involved in the recording part of the mm, <laughs> and the dealing with the musician part. You get it recorded, send me the files, I'll mix it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm pretty scrying, frying gear. I'm pretty good for a seventy year old dude, but uh, I, yeah, I just don't not into the all the hard work part of it anymore i mean i always thought recording was just something i had to do so i got to mix it yeah you know the mixing part has always been okay now i get to do what i love to do okay well let let me let me let me change up the question then so somebody already does the recording who do you want to mix clutch (laughs) okay hey that that should be that should be within reach that seems like a Seriously, that seems like it would be within reach because they're, you know, they're, they're a pretty big band, but they're not, you know, they're not the Foo Fighters or the Beatles or anything. And, some of the really best. <laughs> and your your pedigree is pretty stellar, so it seems to me that that could happen someday. <laughs> well, let's we shall see. Let's talk Jason about agony column. Calls. Let's talk about agony column. Okay. Were you recording them in Austin? And was that right yes. before you moved to Dallas? That was right before yes, you moved I, to Dallas? Yeah, I recorded one right before I moved up here. And then I went back and we went to that. What was the studio right down there next to the Terminex bug? Lone Star. Okay, yeah. Lone Star Studio. And okay. it was kind of like that. They called me and I came down there. And I think that one was for Big Chief. Right. And... Uh, so we, we set up down there, you know, and I, re- I went down there and we spent whatever, probably a long four or five days recording that record. Yeah. There in Lone Star, Lone Star Audio. Were you then, already a, a fan of theirs? Did you already know the the guys? Not when they first came in when I had my when I had my own studio. Right. The first time they came in, we did uh, The Rain Comes Down, which is still one of the, my favorite things I've ever recorded. We re-recorded it for the second, but I still don't like it as well as I do the first. Mm-hmm. It's just the first one caught something. Their, their first time in the studio, youth energy, or I don't know, you know. Yeah, uh, the, the magic. Just had a magic. And I would used to just put that in the car and just blow my speakers up listening. I just, yeah, one of my favorite things I've recorded. And so that was, but then, then we came back and did the full album, and then we did a second album. But Yeah. That was good. Well, they, I've always thought uh, it. I, I'm a bit too close to it because I'm I'm in a band with the Bat Lord, you know, um, yeah. with Stuart. And 
But, you know, the first time you hear something like that, someone gives you just a cassette tape or something. This would have been in the 80s, of course. Yeah. And I'm like, this doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard. It's like, I mean, what did they call it? Hillbilly death metal? And this yeah, is before, something like that. Yeah, this is, this is pre... I mean, I mean, I, I was into what... I was into death metal and black metal before they even <laughs> called it that. But Agony Column is neither black metal, it's not death metal. But the hillbilly... Like four Jeeps and whiskey and... <laughs> well, yeah, and they're yeah. talking about, you know... Uh, it's almost like the South is going to rise again attitude mixed with like punk and thrash metal and boogie woogie sprinkled all over it. Yes. Yeah. And the lyrics are, the lyrics sort of create that, but it, there's definitely something happening in what Stewart was doing on guitar, which was very oh, yeah. He was unique. Yeah. He's still very unique and hyper intelligent and not afraid yeah. to to play dumb rock and roll shit on the guitar in order to to create what it is that you know the backdrop to what Richie was you know the devil chicken what Richie yeah. was trying to trying to do and I think that it was just a magic sauce so to be that, there oh, yeah. the, to be there in the beginnings of that I think once again makes uh, solidifies their legendary status, but as well as yours. I mean, had you well, had that kind of the Austin version of what Deadhead's horse was to Houston? True, a little yeah. bit different kind of a redneck, a little bit different kind of a. Yeah. But you know, both work in their city, both appropriate for you know where they came from and what was going on. I always thought that they were like like the the hillbilly merciful fate. You know, yeah. like they were the hillbilly, like devil metal, but there was this like, you know, boogie woogie shit, you know, rock and roll, uh, you know, country sort of, almost, you know, Stewart doesn't play slide, but it had his solos were, you know, very uh, chicken picking kind of a vibe, but it was thunderous. And there was this, there's, there's, there's still to this day, I don't feel like there's anything that touches that as stylistically. And Ricky with that fretless bass, you know? Yeah, mm. yeah uh, it was uh, Crow. Crow, I mean, yeah. Yeah, Paul, Crow. Paul. Yeah, Paul. Uh, and, and a custom fretless bass at that. Yeah. Uh, he's quite a guy. I still keep up with him on Facebook. And yeah, he's, stuff. A, he he's the best. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting that you're, you're talking about, uh, stuff like this because today some of that wouldn't be so out of left field. But if, if you talk, if you, if you go back and just think about some of the bands we've talked about today, uh, Agony Column, Scratch Acid, Butthole Surfers, um, uh, you know, there, there, there was a t dead horse. There was a time when that was so... Again, I'm going to use the term avant-garde because it just it just didn't fit into a box. It was all very experimental, and um, nowadays, I guess it wouldn't seem so oddball because so many other bands have come along in their wake that have sort of built on that foundation. But uh, you know, Carrie here has had a hand in in the, the the early stages of all that stuff before it was even 
I don't think it's still a genre, but you know, but it, it, at least you could sort of describe it to somebody today and they'd go, oh yeah, so it'd be a little something like this and they wouldn't be too far off the mark. But try explaining agony column to somebody, you know, <laughs> back in the late eighties or something, they wouldn't be like, what? <laughs> and so I, and, and someone in your- Newman and, and flock of seagulls and all that. Yeah, and, and from <laughs> your perspective, and, and from your perspective, you know, trying to capture all that, I'm sure was uh, a very unique experience, if not challenging in some ways, uh, because you're you're putting together seemingly disparate parts to make a cohesive whole. And there wasn't really a template for that back in those days. Yeah, I, I, I've always loved to mash up, you know, in whatever form, you know, uh, so I like taking like I said, putting the piano on, nobody would have thought we were going to put piano on a scratch acid record or have a four part string quartet, you know, play on a scratch acid record. You yeah. know, nobody thought I was going to have cellos and strings and on an, on, on a nemesis record, you know, uh, stuff like that. So it's, uh, that's what I mean. I don't want to follow the genre's rules. That's why I like stuff that doesn't have one yet. Early hip hop was like that. It's not that way now. Now it's very, formulated yeah. and has very strict rules you have to go by and you better sound like that right. but in the early days it's very experimental and you know all these guys were the same way it's like you know we're not trying to copy anybody what do we think sounds cool <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that that's that's interesting because i remember you know listening to music and then you'd hear bands on the radio eventually you heard like a jane's addiction or a faith no more or something like that and i remember thinking that was bizarre especially to be coming on off the radio soundgarden and uh but you know that stuff was percolating beneath the surface even before then and and, and here in texas there was a lot of it apparently and you were right in the middle of it all so that's really cool yeah, I think, i've been really lucky to work with some really great people great musicians I, and great musical concepts I said it. I said it earlier. You know, being being there uh, in early stages, and in Austin when Austin was really cool. That's right. I said it. Austin used to yeah. be cool. Uh, <laughs> the the and you were part of cool Austin. Um, the, uh, the you know the bands that with that that you've worked with that that we've been mentioning and talking about and, and a slew of bands that me and Dave probably don't even know about that you've worked on uh, even even back then I I wanted to sort of pre talk about precedence and when you think about like um, I, I could just say Metallica Kill Em All as a starting point because everybody knows that record and the way that you know the record was recorded and the way that it sounds um as far as I know, they haven't remixed that because they could have. The band owns their own masters. They could have remixed yeah. that, you know, and, and made it sound a certain way. The thing is, is I don't believe they have. So when you go back to uh, pre-83 and what had been, you know, just a good, strong, punchy, uh, high-gain... I'm using words that weren't, didn't even really exist when you talk about uh, styles, thrash metal guitar tone, 
And right. and I'm sorry, I have to say the techniques that we're using where you have the fast alligator, 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 you know, to get to get to get to get to get to get, you know, the double picking, that kind of thing. And the solos right. were played that way, part of the riffs were that way. Um, as well as the sledgehammer downstroking at 100 miles, you know, which is basically coming from when you think about it, giving full credit is Johnny Ramone, who was all yeah. downstroke, super, super fast. Um, you could go back to Dick Dale. Dick Dale. I mean, we're go way, way, way back. But when you talk about uh, extreme music, and, you know, there's. We've already mentioned them. De Devastation. Mike Skasha is the king of, you know, guy, guy, his hand didn't even move. It was like a twitch. And I could watch him play for hours and just go, how, how is he, how is that possible? How, yeah, how is he? You were watching the hummingbird's wing where you just see the blur there. You that don't see anything a, individual. You see the blur. That is a perfect <laughs> yeah. description. So perfect. recording that style of guitar playing or just in and spread it out you know mash it with a, a a dough roller you know uh and just call it the song the style you know when i think about making the early watchtower recordings in the mid 80s you know kill em all was out mega you know a lot of bands were you know that style of guitar playing and those tones that created right. what what we now know as thrash metal or speed metal or you know before 1980 what what are we talking about that had that there's not a whole lot that really comes to mind i'm not really a, an archivist and a historian about it but not a lot of things you know when i heard kill like all, that, I mean, the most, before that you meant the most Thinking, thinking like that's probably like communication breakdown or something, and that's not near the same. <laughs> no, it's not. But but yeah, you think about like or or Judas Priest. You can think early seventies and Judas Priest. But the thing is, is that the tone it was really their technique, which was out was the monster there. Glenn tipped yeah. it on the riff on Exciter, and and I get a good and that could have been. A hillbilly riff it could have been like you know it could have it, bluegrass. It, yeah, yeah bluegrass kind of you know fast double picking stuff which hell when you think about do get to get to get to get to get to get to that that's punk rock but it's also well ain't your partner around around and don't don't around you know so music is music is music is music you put it in a box or whatever but the application and the way you record it can be what separates so oh, yeah. to have a high gain guitar tone it has to be precision the knobs on the amp where he's holding how how the guy's holding the pick where his palm rests on the strings let's talk about your part of it now where the fuck does the microphone go what is the <laughs> eq settings on the strap on the board what are you what's the preamp i mean that i mean are you what kind of bullshit are you putting between the microphone and the tape machine in 1981 82 83 you get it what what the fuck it's a there's Not magic much. here e yeah eq compression and miking yeah. But that's that's one of the things I really got into early on too. And this was more of a Jimmy Page, you know, production influence was having the depth not be this wash of reverb, but having it be an acoustic, an apparent acoustic space. Yeah. You know, so it sounds like they're really in something. It's a 
room or it's a canyon or whatever you know it is but it's not just some digital you know like i said just a wash it actually sounds like something physical and and that's what you know kind of jimmy page and so you know back then it was it was what you had to put it most of the things you did guitars back then you did before the mic before the amp so you know you had you know the rat pedal or the you know the green overdrive or whatever and get your tone there and then you just try to capture that it's really still the same process yes i mean you know i have a way i like to mic guitar cabinets I haven't yeah. seen too many people do it exactly that way. It doesn't mean I'm special or that it's really good. It's just what I always do, and I've always got it out of it. Yeah. So I always avoid the voice coil, and I tend to mic it kind of a 45-degree angle to the speaker cone, or actually sure. almost straight onto the speaker cone, but a 45-degree angle to the speaker. Uh, uh, does that really make any difference? I don't know. It's just it, it works, so I, don't, I quit doing it. I, I, always, I don't quit doing it. And then I'll add room mics or another distant mic or a totally different kind of mic on a different speaker so you can blend them. You know, I've done it, you know, that was back in the old days, like when I was doing some stuff with Joey Belladonna, we, you know, did a whole album and recorded in the guitars. I had discovered the Vitalizer, which is an outboard piece of gear, which is kind of like an oil exciter to make, you know, way oversimplify it, but that kind of a thing. Right, and we set up, and we—I had it set up on a, on a send to blend in, and we set up like eight mics, and me and Joey and Paul went through changing different levels of mics until we got the sound. We go, man, that sounds great, and then we put the vitalizer on it, and it sounded tremendous. You just know, to be clear, and, did you did you say just to be clear, did you say Joey Belladonna? Yeah, the singer for Anthrax. You're right. Yeah. You with that, I did those that's those things. Oh, okay. I wow. With the in-between period. When you know, when he left Anthrax. The in-between period. Wow, wow. okay. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, you got some I big four album and then got, I, I just put you on the big four that put you on the big four <laughs> tree right there, dude. How how did you yeah, well, uh how did you connect with Joey Belladonna? Again, that was to the studio owner. Basically, he was kind of specking Joey, trying to get do a solo album mm. during that period. And it really is a damn good record. But that was when everybody was, oh, no, that sounds so old. We were looking for grunge. We want more Nirvana. We don't want that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was a weird time for metal. I saw yeah. I saw that. I saw him tour that record. I saw it at the back. Yeah, he toured yeah. with Motorhead, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, what was, that, what was the album called, Carrie? Do you remember? As far as I know, it never got released. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I think he. And then I, I think I, I think to, that it did. I think that it came. did. I think it had a single. <laughs> okay. And then once I went to Syracuse and recorded uh, with him and a, a guitar player named Joe Stump. Oh yeah. yeah. If you were one of those Berkeley guitar players, you know Joe Stump. Yeah. If you're not, you probably might not have ever heard of him, but he is no, amazing. Joe, yeah, Joe Stump is excellent, and he was yeah. like. You know the fill-in guy for like Dawkin or somebody who right. you know some hot shot guy had to leave his band and Joe Stump was the guy that came in and just no I think he you know recently did some work with Ozzy. Oh yeah, I think you're really? right. Yeah, he was he was amazing. When we recorded, I think four songs during that one. Wow, wow. 
So I touched on something earlier that I wanted to come back to real quick, just sort of a sidebar, uh, because I, I do want to um, acknowledge this part of your career as well. Outside of the, you know, the music and the, the hard rock, heavy metal, whatever, uh, movies and TV commercials, what, what, what movies, soundtracks or TV commercials have you worked on that we would be familiar with? Probably none. And again, these, they were all kind of underground movies, too. Uh, there's one called Saints and Sinners. That's about a, you know, a tough cop in L.A. I mean, in Louisiana. It's really a pretty cool movie, but, you know, uh, still worked on it for two and a half years. There was a there came a time period where I was like, OK, I'm fed of working in the music business because I had a couple of shots too. If I was going to take my big shot, I should need to go to L.A. And I did not want to do it. I decided to stay here and just, hey, I'll do what I can do because I just do this because I love it. I don't, I'm not going to raise my kid or take my wife to L.A. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I did. I got him. I got I kind of after the Nixon's kind of thing. Right? But then I went, OK, I'm going to just find another job. So I went to doing production. And in that you do a little everything, you know. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I worked on part of those years was for a big Republican political consultant. And so we did a lot of, you know, political things during the season. And then off season, we did a couple of those kind of low budget movies. So, yeah. you know, I've done at some point I've done just about everything you can do in audio. It's <laughs> yeah. And I, I would, I would imagine most people in your shoes kind of do. Yeah. That's how you put bread on the table, right? Tell us about tell us about your your school, Media Tech, and what's going on, and and what you kind of day in the life of uh, directing okay. the, the school. Well, we we are a, an associate level, you know, junior college. Basically, you can get us associate's degree in recording arts, also film and TV, and we have an acting program. Wow, and stuff too. And this basically started as the Sound Lab. Yeah. Over in Las Salinas, you know, where everything used to get done. Uh, you know, again, the big, all the rest of the big studios, have, you know, big studios are dead everywhere except, you know, the both coasts pretty much. And he's Russell uh, Whitaker, who I went to college with. We were in the same classes at UT back then. Uh, started a school. And it's been, gosh, whatever that was, 25 years ago or something since he first started it. And we're all accredited and offered an associate's degree. And I've been here for 10 years. And it's obvious, even when I was going to UT and they had no way to teach anything, the equipment was so poor, I was like, when I get old, I think I'd like to teach. And here I am. I'm old and I got to teach. All right. <laughs> I'm the campus director here now. It's great because, I mean, I do a minors Austin City Limits kind of thing three or four times a year where I bring a band in and we shoot them in there on our big stage and you know and put it together and do videos and one thing or another so uh, it's it's really good you know media tickets too we have one in Houston and one in Dallas and you did have one in Austin on South Carolina. yeah we did but there's Austin's oversaturated with anything along those lines. Yeah, uh, South First, my bad, not South South First is where it was. Yeah, yeah. I've actually I've actually well, went to that. Oh, there, it's, it, is that where it was? Yeah, what was that studio? It was in the back of the Opera House. Arlen. Yeah, it was 
Arlen. It was connected with Arlen for years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. And then I th wasn't, and then it moved down south first, I thought, MediaTake did. Yeah, I think that happened right before I really started working here. That's been a while okay. back. Okay, okay. And then they closed probably five years ago or something. Correct, like that. correct. Yeah, I had some friends going there, and it was a cool facility. It was cool. Yeah. They had a lot of lot of rooms, and and uh, they were always busy. Every time I was there, they were busy. Well, well, well look uh, us up on Facebook and Instagram and your social media, and you can see what it looks like here. Yeah. <laughs> well, from the looks of things, it looks like there's a lot of knobs and buttons and lights and things to yeah. look at. Where yeah, you're, we, have, you know, we have three SSL studios. So, wow, it's pretty cool. Cool. I get well, I'm still here. I still get to get up and go to the studio every day. It's pretty great. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Well, you you uh, you you've you're a legend in, in my eyes, and uh, I just love it that you've recorded my friends and <laughs> you know you've helped uh, introduce the world to uh, you know, living legends and, and some who don't walk the earth anymore who are still legends in, in my book, and you know who I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm speaking of Bruce Corbett, uh, Mike Skasha, and God, there's probably more. You know, w one more thing about Bruce um, before we wrap here. I uh, was fairly randomly sent a link to a, uh, a documentary about the Texas Jam. Yeah, and Bruce Corbett is in that fucking film, and I didn't. I never knew that. Well, he, Bruce he, Bruce was a huge Aerosmith fan, right? Right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. is there is there some oh, sort if of? You Aerosmith? were ever around Bruce Long? You heard about the '78 Texas Jam? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. But well, you know what's, he, what's creepy about that is it shows him being interviewed. You know, and he's kind. You can tell he's yeah. kind of near near a cemetery. Yeah. No, he's That's standing in, he's standing, really? Oh my God, that, I, you just blew my mind. I just found that out because a friend of mine saw it and said, I think I know what that, that is. And he asked somebody who works there and they said, yeah, that's the area they knew, so. Wow. Yeah, yeah I mean, I miss Bruce uh, a lot. Yeah. You know, I still try to look after Gina as much as possible and take you know, sure she's all cool and everything, you know. Well, and, she, she's come out to uh, a few, a few of my, sh come out to a few of my shows there in Fort Worth yeah. and uh, she's a good egg. So. Oh yeah. She's yeah. a sweet. And she was unbelievably strong and amazing for him during that whole situation. I, I, I just have such respect for her. It's just well, amazing. She was she was his angel and and now Absolutely. she's an angel on earth because she she really kind of helped him fight till the very end. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, kind of bulletproof. Pretty strange. Um, yeah. Carrie, this has been an excellent uh, walk down memory lane yeah. and uh, count counting our birthday candles on on the cake a little bit <laughs> and. Uh, uh, not too, not too many embarrassing moments. Uh, if anything, trophies on a shelf, right? They might be dusty yeah. and old, but um, that's how I like it. So we appreciate well, I've been you. Blessed to be with some cool stuff, be able to get on some cool stuff, and be around some nice people. You're still doing it. You're not slowing down. Yeah. You're still involved. You're still doing. You know. I gotta send you the Iron Jaw stuff. 
Yeah, I think I think those guys sent me a CD. I have that CD, but yeah. I'll, I'll get some else to send you. Yeah, send me some stuff, man. <laughs> well, uh, it's been great talking to you, Dave. You, yeah. You want to? No, I just want to say thanks for uh, for joining us today. I, I unlike Jason, I've never met you before, and uh, I really enjoyed picking your brain. And uh, your your resume is is very impressive. And uh, uh, we th we thank you for all your contributions to Texas metal and music in general. And I personally thank you for Hagfish. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad I got to talk a little bit about that as well. And uh, thank you for Agony Column and Signs of Life. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we wish you continued success. We, we wish you continued success in all you do, and thank you for all you've done, and uh, thank you for joining us today. On behalf of my co-host, Jason McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with our special guest today, Carrie Crafton, on the Talk Louder podcast.